0: This is a Media Lab podcast. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. Uh, I'm Dave, and I just feel bad for both of us. I'm Embarrassed, really.
1: And I'm the machine.
0: Well, this is a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. That year just so happens to be 1982. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. Although, we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the film Death Wish 2.
1: It happened once before. Some muggers followed my wife and daughter home from the market. It's about to happen again. The police there got a very good description of the muggers, too. But it didn't do any good. We do what we can. And so does he. Is this your daughter, Mr. Kersey? Mr. Kersey, is that Carol? When murder and rape are the crimes... Bronson is the only punishment. Charles Bronson, Death Wish Two. There's something else you should know, sir. Pork.
2: Quote, air quotes, film, and then <laughs> Death Wish Two. Yeah. Sure.
0: Well, we haven't seen it yet, Dave. Oh, right. in our deep and rich fiction here. But a Ugh. big thank you to our patrons over on Patreon. Their contributions help us continue the show. To see how the machine. Doesn't help us pay for these movies. Plus, each month we do a bonus episode over there. We're getting into the month of August here, so I believe our bonus episode is going to be the uh, what's it? The Adventures First? of Doctor Fives or something like that. Let oh, me did we already pass that. Bruce The Abominable Doctor Fives. Okay. Or Phoebe's. I don't actually know how uh, it's pronounced.
2: I didn't even look at the list, so I'll trust you on it.
0: Uh, you might also notice that my voice sounds a little bit shaky, because I had like this one-day sickness yesterday, so I'm just getting over that. Or, maybe this movie made me sick. Who knows? Uh, this movie, <laughs> or all five. <laughs> yeah, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Before we talk about this week's film here, though, a few things. Number one, we should expand our deep and rich fiction. You know, at the end of last week's episode, I was on my way to have this this fight in the squared circle, in the boxing ring against DDS, DDS, are okay. kind of long-time rival here this season who we've never rival. heard from. Yes, yes. And Dave, do you want to describe what happened in that boxing match?
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, I think the crowd really reacted to the yeah. tights that you wore. Well, they were awful. Yeah. Just the full, the full banana Yeah. Just yeah. saw the whole thing. Embarrassing. Uh, somehow that was still a thong. It's pretty gross. <laughs> Just really, really, yes. really inappropriate. And when Didi has kicked your ass, uh, <laughs> I mean, how long did the match last? Thirty seconds. It was yeah, awful. I, I, yeah.
0: I really thought this was going to be like a Rocky versus Drogo no. situation. Drogo, yeah. sorry, Drago situation. No, not
2: at all. Yeah. Not
0: at all. I in just fact, got it,
2: pummeled. If you want to reference that movie, you were the Apollo Creed of Rocky IV,
0: and <laughs> <Yeah>, they just <laughs> murdered me. Don't you so throw I'm in that all... towel? Maybe yeah. that's what made me sick. I'm all puffy in the face here. My eyes are swollen shut.
2: Also, how you know? How would you describe D.D. Dee Dee Hess having gone up physically against her and looked her straight in her eyes?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She does have eyes. She is a human being. Oh yeah. She is a striking resemblance to the woman in Rocky Four, whose name I have completely Bridget forgotten. Bridget Nielsen. Bridget Nielsen. She looks exactly like Bridget Nielsen. I was so going to say that. Yeah. I mean. So obviously I'm not going to be able to go up against that. So I think what that means is she now actually owns our arcade and wonder emporium. So, you
2: know, like our debt. Yeah. Cause we're not making mm. money with this thing. So enjoy oh God, that. No. There no. hasn't been a,
0: a paying customer in here for weeks.
2: How tall is Bridget Nielsen? Is she six four?
0: Cause sure. uh, yeah, she know. broke you like a twig.
1: <laughs> Honestly, it got me so horny.
0: All right. Well, we'll continue investigating that. Um, We also have a bit of feedback. We actually did get a uh, a message sent into us here by William, who listened to our first Blood episode. Okay. There was a moment in there that we were talking about Brian Dennehy. I think I said this either last week or the week before about how people love to send in notes about things we forget to mention (laughs) rather than things we say. Okay. Uh, he actually said some very nice things about how much he loves the show. But the point I'm going to bring out from this letter is, how did neither of you mention that Brian Dennehy was Chris Farley's dad in Tommy Boy? Uh, shit. <laughs> Which is like, well, true.
2: Yeah. True. I watched Tommy... Ah, oh, damn. That is a that is a miss. I When's the last time you watched Tommy Boy? <laughs> God. Long, long time ago. Easily over... Yeah, 20 years ago. What? When is that movie called? 95? 95, yeah,
0: probably? Uh, 94, 95? It is... Yeah. There's no way that holds up either, I'm pretty sure. I don't know, sure, I don't know, because
2: that one relied largely on Chris Farley hitting things with his face, so it may still be funny, you know? And Dave Spade was still young and still an asshole, so he plays
0: that really well. Chris Farley did pass away in the late 90s, but I was going to say, it, it's interesting that they didn't do more movies together, you would think well, they, that they would Well, they did Black have.
2: Sheep, yeah, they did two, and then yeah. he
0: did Beverly Hills Ninja, which
2: was, uh, good...
0: Was it? No. I don't know. That's not my remembrance of that. <laughs> but uh, uh, I think Will points out something correct here: the fact that we were like trying to show, like, what else has Brian Dennehy done? What? What other big movies has Brian Dennehy well, done? We, and FX, we couldn't come yeah. up with Tommy well. Boy.
2: <laughs> you know, FX is good with uh, the mm-hmm. other Brian. I don't remember his name. <laughs> okay, um, is that so, the first time you take a face off, or no? Or was it just special effects with blood and gore? Who cares? I can't find that movie anyways. Well, I,
0: because we are talking about Death Wish 2 here, I think we should kind of talk a little bit about our history of certain elements. We have talked about Charles Chucky B. Bronson Chucky. here before on the show. Nobody can calls go back him that. To our not Red to Dawn episode. Yes.
2: Yeah, Red Sun, not... Uh... God. <laughs> That's okay. Yes, you're right. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> we can do this. We can do this together.
0: Yeah. There's the sun that leads into the dawn. Yeah. It's, it's an easy mistake. Communists show
2: up in Western uh, America mm-hmm. in the uh, 19th century.
0: A movie that Dave and I continually say is a movie that should be remade because the building blocks are there for it to be good. It just was not very good in the execution. Yeah, Charles Bronson actually was pretty good in that.
2: Like for yeah. being Charles Bronson,
0: he was just himself. Yeah. But I was just going to say, any other additional thoughts you have about Charles Bronson?
2: No, uh, I think we talked about how jacked he was, which would, didn't make sense for 1971. He was definitely mm. on the early roids. Uh, he's got, I don't know, he, he's just, this is the kind of movie he makes, right? Mm-hmm. He just punches a lot of people in the face and he became very famous for it. I'd like to think he was a better actor, but I don't think that's the case, so.
0: Yeah, I think I think we discussed this in our Arnold Schwarzenegger discussion when we were talking about Conan here a few weeks ago, where I I cannot make the claim that Arnold Schwarzenegger is a good actor, no. but there are certain strengths that he has that when the right directors work with him, they can lean into what makes him good and what makes him shine.
2: Mm. He's not a good actor, but he... Acts good? No, that doesn't make sense. Well, it, it,
0: you just have to make sure that you are putting him in things that he's going to excel at. Like, again, we're not going to put him as Hamlet. Like, he's just is not going to excel <laughs> in that movie. It'd be pretty good, though. Right? That final uh, fencing scene <laughs> would To be or not to be. <laughs> <laughs> you know.
2: <laughs> uh, he's had a, I don't know. Has he ever died in a film? Huh. Other than Terminator?
0: He, I think I was going to say the first
2: that. Terminator for sure. Yeah. But Well, second one. With the thumbs up and the fire. Come on, Kyle. That's like one of the greatest. No, that's one of the greatest moments in cinematic history. Okay. Right? How do you have a movie podcast?
0: (laughs) Whatever. So regardless, my point being is I think from what I can gather and from doing some more research here this week, I think Charles Bronson works the best when he plays the strong, silent type. Meaning that he is there to like use his face. Be there, be like the big tough, but then not actually talk a lot. Because I don't think he's actually that good of an actor. No, he's... Uh, in, he's in total. But he's, he has a presence that yeah. you can utilize. So, yeah. if you're doing the Magnificent Seven he's or the Dozen or whatever it happens to be, we can make this work.
2: He was the alpha male of his generation. Sort of. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were many different types of alphas because we live in that culture. But I think the 70s, as we learned, was very different. Dirty action hero. You know, it wasn't yeah. the John Wayne's or the, like, the knight in the white. Well, they're all white, but armor. <laughs> uh He was gritty right. and he looked like he had taken a lot of punches to the face, but right. we weren't quite at Rocky yet. So it wasn't a redeeming thing. People just wanted a guy with muscles on his face. Maybe it weren't wrinkles. Maybe he worked his face out, right? A six pack of the. Uh, Threw his face against uh, the wall a bunch of times. Just uh, people liked him. Well, uh, sure. People liked him.
0: How about this? series dave meaning have you seen any of the death wish films or the remakes of any of the death wish films
2: i I doubt it i know that they exist so i wanted to say that i've seen one but uh, on the presumption that i watched one this week uh, i've definitely never watched any of them so i don't know why i know i mean it's in the American... I don't know. Is it a Zeitgeist movie? I've heard of it. I think so. Yeah, uh, I don't know.
0: I mean, Death Wish is in itself a um, colloquial term that people use. Yeah, so I don't know if that's predates just the reason film. why. Yeah, okay, uh, sure, yeah. sure.
2: Maybe that's why. If someone says, Maybe oh, that's Death just why Wish, you're like, yeah, I know about people who wish for death.
0: <laughs> I was wishing for death when I was watching this film. I <laughs> don't um, <laughs> we've all, seen it yet. And, and all not five... Yeah, seen it yet.
2: I get into that too.
0: Okay, so... This, of course, is the sequel to Death Wish, which came out in 1974. So it's been pretty a pretty big break from the first film to this film. I know that I have never seen any of the Charles Bronson Death Wish movies. However, I have seen a movie called Death Sentence. I actually went and saw it in the theater. Why? Why? Because it had uh, Kevin Bacon in it. I was like, I I like Kevin Bacon. It looks interesting. Come on,
2: how was it, Cal? 'Cause I'll tell you it was so, bad, but how was it? <laughs> was bad, it was bad, but yeah. Yeah. But so it I will say death just... sentence <laughs> <laughs> You paid money. Well
0: you who g- knows? You gave, You can always be surprised. You gave someone money for that.
1: This podcast has been filled with Carl repeatedly demonstrating he likes to waste his money.
0: I, I think the general idea has been used in so many different films. So Death Sentence is the book sequel to the book Death Wish. Okay. I, I barely remember the movie, but I do remember that I thought, like, the setup to Death Sentence was interesting, and then as soon as he goes on this killing spree, I was like, I'm kind of out of this. I don't... Um, there's another one with Jodie Foster called The Enfor... No, The Brave One. The Brave oh, One. The is- Brave One. Which is one. basically the same concept I again. I never watched which it. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which so I remember, like, on
2: her I didn't watch it, but I kind of wanted to. That's pretty recent, right? Within the last 10 years.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just before I want to say, want to say 2007,
2: maybe. Oh, like maybe. older. I was thinking like 2015 or 16 or something. No.
0: Anyways. No, there's a 2018 movie called Death Wish. Death Wish, which is a remake, which stars... Um, is that Bruce Willis? Bruce Willis. Yeah. So, I didn't watch that. Which again, it's just a remake of the original Death Wish. This is a film and an idea that continually gets made, which is something bad happens to someone's family and then they take it upon themselves to go and act vengeance upon this group vengeance is a classic that's a classic
2: thing but vigilantism is such an american thing Mm -hmm. americans love good vigilante i mean i I grew up with batman i'll defend batman so i guess i'm
0: excited to jump into this film gross (laughs) i think we should make our our biases uh, totally up front here i'm Pretty confident I'm not going to like this movie even before I started watching it, yes. which is kind of a bad way to go into a film. You're like, I'm going to hate this. But just based on everything that I've read about it, I was like, mm, this feels like a not Kyle movie. So we'll see if I am correct. I mean,
2: it's based on a 1970s movie called Death Wish. We know we're not going <laughs> to.
0: Well, you will it. remember that we split pretty vociferously Ooh. on Dirty Harry. Were we yelling
2: a lot that episode? The first yeah. half is fine. But yeah, when it gets into uh zodiac or son of sam the zodiac killer whatever it's scorpio scorpio
0: they call him scorpio
2: it just collapsed under the weight of its own grossness you know it's just sick
0: yeah and and that's your point of view i still think that film has a bit of a tongue-in-cheek mentality like i cut the tongue
2: out it was gross (laughs) yeah it's disgusting
0: but let's do this here, Dave. Before we do a deep dive into this movie, let's go and thank some sponsors. And then when we come back, we'll be talking a little bit more about Death Wish 2. Do you think Charles Bronson uh, cares that he can't act?
2: No, no. <laughs> <laughs> what a lead off. Uh, I don't think Charles Bronson cares about anything. Except putting his fist through Righteous the
0: face. fury. It does, yeah. does take effort to wear that mustache in real life, just walking I, around. I, I think
2: it's just his skin. Yeah, I don't think it even grows. It's just there. It's just part of his face. No, that's not true. In Red sun, he was cleanly shaven, wasn't he?
0: Hey, hmm. you talking to me? Hey. <laughs> that's my Charles Bronson <laughs> impression. Sorry. <laughs> are you sick? Are
2: you going to get me sick, Dave? No, 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 there's no. I mean, there are computer viruses. Um. I, I
0: just biked home, so... <clears throat> but you you're breathing that that pure 1982 air.
2: It's it's purer than it would be in 2022, I, mean, there, I think.
0: There is the cocaine dust that hovers yeah. large in everything that we're doing here. But Well, I was
2: just thinking about Rocky Three and how Philadelphia still look like a shithole. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> air might not have been pure you, on that, yeah, that alleyway. Yeah. Just pure,
0: directly burning garbage on the streets. And, you know.
2: Burning garbage, rotting fish, and I'm pretty sure slabs of thawing meat. Mm-hmm. You know, just... Well, Cast talking about site.
0: slabs of uh, thawing meat, Charles Bronson is in this movie that we're talking about this week. <laughs> I
2: feel like we're re-recording the podcast.
0: as <laughs> listen, listen, Colin Davers of the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. D- uh, Davidson, this week I get to tell <laughs> you about... Are you allowed to say that? <laughs> is that
2: is that a Asian reference? Or no, more? It's, either it's, way. It's, 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 either we, way, we it's all wrong. know that
0: Dave is actually short for Davidson. That is your <laughs> f- legal first name. I know you don't want a lot of people to know just, that so they don't dox you. But yeah, <laughs> dox.
2: We'll uh, rename the podcast Harley and Dave. Now
0: Harley and Davidson. Harley and Davidson versus the machine. I get to talk to you about the Edmonton Community Foundation. So this episode is brought to you by them. The foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself with a group, once it reaches $10,000, it can then start distributing funds. Vital Signs, that's capitalized, so Vital Signs is an annual checkup conducted by Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with Edmonton Social Planning Council to measure how the community is doing. This year's focus, is on making ends meet in Edmonton, in Edmonton. Mm, mm, Edmonton. So call to action is this, learn more at ecfoundation.org.
2: I'm sorry, could you give me that uh, URL again?
0: That URL is ecfoundation.org.
2: Excellent. Our other, no, I was going to say grateful, but that's the wrong word. What's the right word? Our other generous sponsor this week, Park Power.
0: I do like the idea of them being grateful, which is like oh my, we really need to be on this Kyle and Dave podcast. Oh, we're Thank so you. thankful. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you take, so much.
2: Take my money. Take my money. Thank you. We're getting so much back from your funneling. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see the stat. Kyle, let's save some money. Mm-hmm. In Alberta, you get to choose not Kyle, but you're the the listener. Royal you the yeah. Yeah Royal, you get to choose who to buy your internet, electricity and natural gas from. Park Power has low overhead, which in turn allows them to offer low competitive rates. Reach out for a no obligations comparison by emailing estimates at parkpower.ca. If you decide to switch, it's easy. It's really just a change to your billing. you can feel good, knowing you are helping to give back to our communities with your utility bills i was running out of breath i don't know if you can tell <laughs> learn more at learn more at dot
0: now i take out my like my guns and I'm like pew 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 yeah pew pew pew, pew. and then we go oh. into the episode
2: yeah we haven't watched it yet but mm-hmm. shouldn't he have had more guns
0: you have to watch the other four sequels dave that's where they <laughs> get the guns <laughs>
2: Good job thanking the sponsors there, Kyle. Yeah, that was refreshing. Be
0: great because my voice will be so different <laughs> during the ad read segment. What did you
2: drink just now? I mean, you sounded bright
0: Water. and healthy. Yeah. It was- mm-hmm. All right, Dave. So we've watched the movie, and I have to. I have to. Put my foot down here a little bit before we jump into talking about this movie. On someone's throat, you have to promise uh, that you're not going to dave it up, okay? <laughs> what the you fuck can't that just mean? come I'm here like, hated it, don't like it. It's so all stupid. It. Yeah, it was so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> you have to actually have a conversation about it. I'm having a conversation. Uh, it's a pretty simple. Two word answers to <laughs> everything. <laughs> oh, shit. So. Yeah. But how about this, Dave? How about um, we were, you know, out one night, yeah. tracking down. Hooligans that we found spray painting their tags on the sides of
2: buildings.
0: (laughs) Uh, They're called called
2: street artists now, Kyle. Uh, They're good people. Okay, well, when we
0: corner one of these street artists in the back alley, (sighs) they're like, I'm so sorry, but I have this. And he shows us a VHS copy of Death Wish 2. I thought you were going somewhere else when you gestured to your crotch. Yes. (laughs) I did not. (laughs) He shows us this VHS copy of Death Wish 2 and it's like, all I wanted to know is what this movie is about. What is Death Wish 2 about? I don't know. Plot wise.
2: Death. Without referring to the first one, let's say there's a man, allegedly an architect, which we find out later, and it's irrelevant to the story. His, uh, so a man whose housekeeper is brutally raped for no reason and then murdered accidentally, essentially, whose daughter is kidnapped, raped, and dies, decides that even without a proper police investigation, he's going to grab some guns, he's going to hunt these guys down, and he's going to kill them.
0: And so, what were your thoughts on said film?
2: Yeah, no, shit. Uh, I you know what struck me to start is that I don't know if you got the same feeling and I don't know if it's the copy we got, uh, which may or may not have been one that one pays for, but it looked like it was shot like a TV sitcom for the first 10 minutes. I don't know what it was. It was right. so awkward. There was just something I was waiting for a oh, laugh track. Yeah, when he's on the when he's on the bus, you're talking about. Uh, yeah, before all the grisly, disgusting shit happens, he's, when he's just kind of like they. Uh, I don't remember specific because I'm trying actively to erase this film from my head, but I think they do a couple of like panning. Shots of his house and then of mm-hmm. him and his new wife hanging out and uh, talking about uh, going to hospital to see his daughter and they're going to go buy ice cream and they're at a market. And I was just waiting for a laugh track. It was so bizarre. And then as soon as the thugs show up and it's like out of a bad music video. <laughs> sure. Um, did it catch your eye? Like a, uh, the, One of the members, I'm like, that can't be Lawrence Fishburne. How did Lawrence
0: Fishburne get a career okay. after being in this piece of shit? But I have to tell th- you. It is bonkers how the... Because f- I actually took it upon myself. I took the bullet for us and watched all five Death what Wish films is, this week. Why?
2: Why do you hate... You should love yourself more,
0: Kyle. Dave, I made the conscious decision to be like, should I watch the Kurosawa's High and Low or <laughs> Death Wish 5?
2: Wait, 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 sh- wait.
0: wait. Yeah, Have you not seen High and Low yet? I have not, no. You
2: are a horrible human being. <laughs>
0: It's coming, I'll get to it. You chose five Death Wish films over one (laughs) Kurosawa film. I I... know, I'm like one of the best films of all time, apparently, Uh, and uh, I decided to not do that.
1: Wow. Personally, I think you made the better choice.
0: It is bonkers how the first three, at the very least, have these cameos by people who would go on to have super big careers in the first movie alone olympia dukakis shows up for like five seconds like standing at a desk um oh god the guy who directs uh, christopher guest christopher guest is like a guard again for five seconds and jeff goldblum is one of the street tops (laughs) at the very beginning like what is happening why are are all these people in transformed into a fly yet i guess Mm -hmm. and then I forget who the person is in the third film but there's another person who's like pretty big name who shows up for maybe five seconds in the film i'm like wow but you're right yeah that is Lawrence fishburne who shows up for Oh, it's Alex Winter. Alex Winter shows up in the third film, pre-Bill and Ted. (laughs) Um, yeah. So, then they're buying, he's waiting to
2: buy ice cream, these cartoonish 80s gang steals his, I don't know why they would target a guy that looks like he's been punched in the face for like his whole life. That that doesn't even make any sense. And then he chases them down, they decide they're going to enact revenge for no reason that makes any sense by breaking into his house, finding his housemaid. Which is such an awkward character? I read later why that that character even exists in this film. Brutally rape her again, just so random. Like I was gagging. Why? Why does this happen in a
0: movie? If you if you want to believe it, it's not as disgusting as the first one. Okay, and it's not a straw dog. If that makes you feel any better, yeah, yeah, it's fair.
2: And then the daughter is the daughter in the first one. Like what is yes. it? So is she? Does she have autism or is this okay. PTSD? So just to, to,
0: so just to talk about the first one, and I'll get into the other ones here okay. later on, but in the first film, this the whole setup in the first film is like he's a bleeding heart liberal and he believes in like the goodness of people. And then his wife and daughter are out shopping, and this is the uh time frame where you could in at least in New York City, be like, Can you deliver my groceries to my building? So they give the address of the person, the street toughs over here and see where the address is, and then they go in. Uh, brutally raped the daughter, kill the wife. How old is and the, the daughter? daughter at she just this has point? huge PTSD throughout the entire thing. She's like a teenager. Yes,
2: excellent. This is what you want in film, people. This is why there's five sequels or four sequels. Mm-hmm. It's it's gold, Jerry. So
0: yeah, okay. So I is it the same did, actress
2: did, in the second one?
0: No, it can't be. I didn't did double later. check.
2: You no, know, it can't be. It should have been. In her like thirties, this woman doesn't look that old, so then this thing happens, Kyle, and then from there, not only is it dumb and violent, it's actually kind of boring like he's just for more than half the movie he's just walking around in a in a knit hat, but why does he even need a hotel room? you know if he he can just mm. operate out of his house in the big finale they set up this ridiculous reveal where he's gonna do the fake ideas in his living room, but then go to this hotel to start his uh Misadventure, like none of it makes sense. It is such a dumb, dumb, dumb thing. Mm. Three dumbs. <laughs> no, it, it deserves more dumb. It's just so dumb. What's even so dumber same just... is if you log into Letterboxd and read some of these assholes who defend it. I don't know if they're just taking the piss,
0: but should be Shocking. Maybe. shocking. But we should be pretty clear. It's not like it's a highly rated film on Letterboxd. It's under three. So, it's like it's not uh, like it's like beloved or something like that. It should be a one. (laughs) I actually think so. I agree with you on that point. I did not like the first movie just to start out with, but at the bare minimum, there is a plot to it, right? Like, you know, there's inciting action, him going off the rails, and him devolving into going and targeting people to be vigilante. In this second film, yes, there's that, that brutal like introductory scene, but then for like the majority of this film, it's just like Charles Bronson standing in shadows and yeah. like going around and being moody. Like nothing happens in this movie. It's so boring. And then we have to bring back this police detective from New York Why? who had yeah. nothing to this movie.
2: Why is like he Like literally nothing to this yeah. movie. So weird. He's
0: just there to come in and like save him in this one instance. And then die. And him being like, oh, I guess the cops are on my side. <laughs> And now I can go and kill some more people. It is so bonkers <laughs> how anyone thought this was a a well plotted movie. I can't. I just can't. And it's kind of the anomaly because I would say that again, having watched all five, it's the only one that feels like that. That there's just no plot to sustain ninety minutes of a movie. It is so feels so stretched out.
2: It's weird that he has no. There's no impact for his actions. Like so on two sides. One. We have no moral reflection on what he's doing. Nobody gives a shit. Mm. You know, we have a cop and his so-called new girlfriend that seem to waver on whether this is right or wrong. But as we watch this character, the director and the writer do not give a fuck that this guy goes out to bu- like intentionally murder a bunch of people, right or wrong. I mean, the they try to make the crime as gruesome and violent as possible to justify this action, but it's a joke. The other thing that takes away from the action thriller is the kills are so anticlimactic. Like when he finds the first guy and he just says a stupid line about Jesus and then he shoots him, you're yeah, like, Yeah, do you oh, believe that in it? Jesus? Like, well, you're he didn't. Meet him. yeah, it Bam. wasn't even that, whatever. The, the last kill when he electrocutes the guy, I don't know. I mean, at that point, we're getting into cheeseball action, right? But mm-hmm. I mean, that whole setup of him going in, nobody would believe he's a psychologist. Look at his face, pal. That's a man <laughs> who murders people, right? <laughs> this is a, this dick, is a
0: man who's seen some shit. Yeah, yeah. I think that, that that's the whole thing, that like the whole tone of these films, and I think it is so telling that the author of the original book hated the adaptation so much because it makes the guy into a hero. He's like, that's not the point of what my book is about. And then the screenwriter of this film also turned on like, you made way too many changes. There was no rapes in the original screenplay, so that was added in by the director, where it's like you're you are constantly seeing that this is... Really the director and maybe Charles Bronson himself being like "Ooh, let's get to as salacious as we possibly can Within this without having really any point we are just seeing someone enact Vengeance and perhaps that could be fun in a way, but I don't think when you open a film as Aggressively as you do in these first two at least that you then get to have like oh, we're gonna have like these fun Like happy kills the tone feels off to me the entire time and I think we're going to get into it because I I do like the first Dirty Harry movie, and this is I I'm bringing it up here. This is what I wrote on my uh, letterbox review, my personal letterbox review of the first Death Who Wish movie.
2: References their own writing, it's pretentious, super <laughs> it's, it's pretentious. Yeah. This
0: is the the first Death Wish movie is what I wrote is so many people compare this to Dirty Harry, a film that I liked. For sure there are similar themes that both are exploring. Most obviously that vigilantism is an appropriate response to a broken system. But in the Clint Eastwood film it begins in a heightened way where he's stuffing his face with a hot dog and then foils a bank robbery while asking the punks if they feel lucky. He's essentially a superhero in police clothing. Him being a police officer also changes things as we see the corruption taking place, his, fr- his frustrations mount, and then him only going after the people that are falling through the cracks because of a broken bureaucracy. In this film, things start far more realistically with a man loving his wife, then we see a brutal gang rape committed against his wife and daughter, all of this is grounded in too much realism to be detached from it. The movie then wants us to root for this man going out into the streets and intentionally finding people to shoot. Yes, they're muggers for the most part, but they have nothing to do with the crimes inflicted upon his wife and daughter, etc, etc. That is, I think, the biggest thing in the first film, is that he actually never goes in and acts vengeance against the people who commit the oh, acts. He never finds
2: the people that never. Did.
0: He is just going out and indiscriminately killing people that he comes across. Oh. (laughs) Which is his own thing. And in this movie, he is. He actually is targeting the people who did the murders and stuff like that. I mean, it's
2: gross. I don't mean interesting like I want to
0: watch. But along the way, indiscriminately killing people as well. I, I think that's the problem that I have with it. I guess. There's, there's, like I said, in the Dirty Harry example, at least that there there is an attempt, whether you like it or not, to comment on this broken bureaucracy. And in this, it's like, well, I'm the only person who knows what's going on, so I'm just going to go and start killing people randomly. For the Dirty Harry example, it's it, it, it feels like there is at least this attempt at some sort of thematic exploration of a broken bureaucracy. And here it's kind of like, Right wing propaganda is what it feels like to me, where it's just like, wouldn't it be great if an old person can just go out and kill a bunch of people because they know what's right? You know,
2: I, the only, I don't know, I want to say pushbacks. I don't support, uh, number one, it, you, from what you're describing of the first death wish, what does that say about American culture in the mid 70s that that's mm. popular? Because there's just sure. nothing in it. If he's not even enacting, let's say, justifiable vengeance then why do people want to see it so much? That's really fucking weird. There's something, I don't know, psychotic's the wrong word, but sociopathic. There's something about that that's kind of gross, isn't there? I mean, Mm -hmm. usually now with Vengeance movies, it's so specific because we have to walk that moral line that nothing justifies you going out becoming a serial killer yourself. That's fucking weird. This one, I remember you texting me about um, making a joke about the NRA. What's weird about this one for me is that, you know, he's got this little pistol, he steals another one, but the bad guys are the ones with the machine guns out of a trunk. He's -hmm. not arming up like we see in modern vengeance movies. He's not John Wick, you know, with a closet full of high tech assault weapons. You can make an argument that John Wick is way more pro-gun than anything uh, that's in this film. This film for me is just, it's just bloodlust. They just wanted... They keyed into the fact that I think America wanted as much gore and not gore, as much just brutal, insane violence. It's not even like it's not even that violent. What is it? Like, uh, yeah, sociopathy. They wanted this ability for someone on screen to harm people. And they knew that people wanted that, or they thought that people wanted, I don't know how successful this movie is, but they thought that that's what the American public wanted to see an old Mm -hmm. man go out and just shoot. Uh, Just shoot people on the street. That's just so weird, man. Like, why does this exist? Why were there sequels to it? I I guess you'll inform me whether people actually watched this or not, or whether the other ones were theatrical releases or just Charles Bronson trying to salvage acting jobs because he wasn't. I think they were very
0: well. The third one, like all of them, were theatrically released. I don't think the fourth and fifth were widely released. Like Mm -hmm. they were (laughs) not a huge release schedule for the last two specifically. Yeah, yeah. It's a fascinating question because I am always super fascinated by films that spawn a ton of sequels yeah again as a masochist i have seen all of like the friday the 13th movies i've seen all of these like all the halloween movies and it's just like well there's something here like they wouldn't keep making them if there wasn't some sort of revenue stream coming in so what is it about some of these properties that continue to like pump out sequel after sequel after sequel more to that is that what i'm more curious about is like this is a bit of an anomaly, or maybe maybe it's not, and I'm just looking at things through rose-colored glasses, but we're, we, we watched First Blood here a few weeks ago, and in that one it feels more justified because he himself, John Rambo, is being targeted by a corrupt police system. So while yes, he is being a vigilante, quote unquote, it's because they're coming after him, and he's trying to push them away. And I would say that the the same thing, in a way, is true for John Wick. Yes, I think you could make that argument of being super pro-gun, but uh, spoiler alert: they kill his dog, they kill what? all these other things, not his dog. And I think he feels like, well, I have to take retribution for these people who have targeted me specifically. I don't know if something could be broadly popular anymore if it was just, well, I'm just going to go out into the streets and start shooting people. No, of course I, so. I don't know if we, it well, could be.
2: I mean, you got the people's fascination with the Joker and things like that. I think if you were going to salvage this film, much like you were talking about with Dirty Hair, I mean, Charles Bronson can be a quote-unquote architect if he wants. I mean, that's a stretch. <laughs> yeah. But um, we need to see, A that the police are going to be incompetent and they don't seem incompetent in this film. <laughs> they're just, they're trying to do their job. Like we don't see that they're bumbling or anything. They're actually asking him for help to do the work and he just won't do it. So we already have this problem of having to ask like, why is he already decided that he's gonna murder a bunch of people? It's its very, why did he go to the woods and chop wood? Like what, what <laughs> was that scene about? It was so strange. You know, we have to see that there is some impact in his life from these actions. You know, and whatever. If you want to make it a cartoon and he wants to be a superhero, like Dirty Harry at the end, um, even Dirty Harry at the end, he's not happy with the no. result, right? He gets what he believed would be the end of that confrontation with Scorpio. But he's, you know, he throws away the badge. He should have right. died. He's not. He's not in a position where he's like enjoying his life after. Whereas this Same one- it's one of the
0: sequels, by the way. Five and five for yeah. Dirty Harry and Death Wish.
2: Whereas this one, I don't know. These are the kind of films that we should worry about spawning copycats, you know, yeah. because it glorifies the violence as opposed to demonstrating the violence, even if it's justified. But having at least, I mean, I hate to be an old man, but some moral underpinning- <laughs> <laughs> or we could just be like, all right, like Rambo, like first blood, he does his best not to kill anybody. But if it didn't if it didn't have that final speech or that explanation of PTSD or the corporal, like there's so many things that happen in it when they come in and they add these elements to give it depth at least you have to think about like oh brian den he was an asshole or like they did shoot first so there was this psychopathic uh cop trying to shoot him on the cliff like you know they give you little things where you can identify with the character charles bronson in this film is just he's a serial killer is what he is mm-hmm. and uh, i don't want to watch it but you made me and i'll never forgive you
0: kyle <laughs> <laughs> well it, it was a machine that made you do this but uh
1: that's not how i remember it
0: I think that's what it is too. When we talk about acting and point of view or that sort of thing, say what you will about Clint Eastwood. If you compare Clint Eastwood as Dirty Harry versus Charles Bronson as Architect, Paul Kersey, yeah. is that yeah. what his name yeah, is? Yeah, sounds movie. familiar. I watch Larry Five movies. And I don't know what his name is. Because it's not important, right? Doesn't matter, I guess. Um, yeah, Paul Kersey. There is a distinct difference in the level of talent there. And the, the the point of view that is going on within them. So yeah, I, honestly, this just feels, to me, I know I've made this point already, but it just feels like, to me, it's like, wouldn't it be cool if we could just go and kill the people that wrong us? Wouldn't that be a better system? Yes. Like, that's really what this movie kind of breaks down to be. And not to be ageist about it, but also, the, f- the first Death Wish movie, he's already 53 or something like that. This movie, he was 60 when they filmed it. By the fifth one, he is 72 or 71. Like, this is absolutely wish fulfillment for an aging population who sees changes happening that they're not cool with. Too liberal. This is what it really feels like to me.
2: The other thing, I I mean, bringing up Clint Eastwood, as we saw later in hindsight, he's a more than competent director and storyteller. So he's somebody that you put the script of Dirty Harry in it. He's not going to just have a one-dimensional reading of that script, go up on screen and just be like, all right, I've got this big gun. I'm here to shoot a bunch of people, take my check and go home. So, even though he's uh, got that grisly sort of talk to my, through my grit teeth persona, mm-hmm. he doesn't fall into the Kevin Costner thing where he just becomes a block of wood for the rest of his life. He doesn't turn into the <laughs> Charles Bronson thing where he's so detached that we never get any character development in any film. He is able to ride that line. And, and so, he's you know, he's justifiably considered one of the greats uh, of American uh, cinema, I think, at least as well. Yeah, I right? think maybe
0: that's the biggest thing. Is, again, th- there are criticisms you can level at Clint Eastwood, but he is a, he, he he understands, again, what his acting talents are and what he can lean into and can be very effective. Charles Bronson has nothing one degree of acting ability like i don't even know like i have for most of this writing time i have no idea what he's thinking or what is actually what's going on in his head because there's no there's nothing happening with his face or he's not telling us anything either so it's like i guess he just enjoys it i guess he just likes going out and having a, the barest of excuse well i shouldn't say barest of excuses but he just wants an excuse to go out and start murdering people again
2: i think we talked about this in red sun but i i just reread it quickly before we started recording but you know he had a traumatic childhood uh, the actor mm-hmm. And uh, from all accounts, his real life personality was like that too. He just, he was not emotionally available to the general public because he had a strong distrust of authority figures and relationships. And I think uh, some people, which we learn particularly, you know, with actors and comedians, many of them do come from difficult lives. I mean, it does take quite a push to put yourself in front of people and be either vulnerable or masculine. I mean, I don't know. We can get into a person by person debate about that, but I suspect- you know, this is not an indictment on Charles Bronson, the human being. I'm sure he was a very intelligent and uh, active person. I, I don't know. But from the brief overview I read, it sounds like his reputation in the industry was exactly this that mm. he would show up, uh, he knew where he was needed to uh, build a successful career, and then he would just go home and tell everyone to fuck off and leave him alone. And I think <laughs> you see that. Like it's. That's just what he was good at. I think that's why he was so popular in the 60s because that was the era of the hard Western and these action films where people were supposed to be stoic and men weren't supposed right. to emote a lot and he would excel at that, right? And you see that with, um, what is it, Magnificent Seven and that Army movie, Not Longest mm-hmm. Day. What was the one?
0: Uh, is he in the Dirty Dozen? I said Dirty that, Dozen, I don't think, yes. Is he in the Dirty Dozen? I think dozen? so. Yeah.
2: Anyways, um, you know, where you have a bunch of grizzled, dirty guys who are just like, and? <laughs> right. And
0: then you're like, oh, yeah, I believe that. I believe that. Mm-hmm.
1: So. He's got the kind of face you could sharpen a pencil on.
0: Well, this movie, Dave, opened up on February 19th, 1982. It is currently rated at 2.9 on Letterboxd out of 5, a 6.0 on IMDb out of 10. It has an 11 on Metacritic. That's out of 100. And on Rotten Tomatoes from 18 critics, it's at a 33%. And from 5,000 plus users, it's at 44%. So it is a stinky movie. It is a (laughs) rotten movie, according to to Rotten Tomatoes. That being said, you can buy this on DVD and Blu-ray, and you can purchase or rent it on iTunes or YouTube. It had a budget of $8 million. Its box office would be $16.1 million. It
2: did shit. Why would there more? It was a shit. It didn't make any money.
0: Um, I'll, I'll get to that, okay. actually, yeah. Dave. So about $49 million adjusted for inflation. Yeah, so it, it wasn't like a huge box office hit. Like, it needs to be said. Like, it was not a huge hit. His plot description, though, is architect Paul Kersey once again becomes a vigilante when he tries to find the five street punks who murdered his daughter and housekeeper, this time on the dark streets of Los Angeles. Uh, he's in New York in the first one, if we didn't make that clear. Well, Dave, it's now time to play everyone's favorite game, Guess yes. That tag. Okay. This is, of course, the part of the show where I don my handsome blazer, pick up this long microphone that Barb Barker used to so use, gross. and you have to choose which of these three options is the proper tagline. You know, when you go to see a movie, maybe you're going to go and see Nope from Jordan Peele or something like that. Nope. And you come into the movie theater you see this row of posters great images great graphic designers no notes of course between for the people who make movie posters nowadays i love seeing floating heads and underneath those floating heads is uh, is normally a a one sentence description to entice you to come and see this movie a little bon mot or something like that that Uh, what's your appetite so these three options dave one of these is the actual real tagline to this movie that showed up on the poster and the other two are completely made up by me by the way just as a complete aside go and look at the official poster that was released with this movie and be disgusted at whatever (laughs) the artist thought charles bronson was supposed to look like it is a garish (laughs) depiction of what charles bronson looks like okay Dave, option number one is be careful what you wish for. Option number two, unfortunately for the criminals of Los Angeles, Bronson is back. Or number three, first his wife, now his daughter, it's time to even the score. I'm going to go with two. Uh, unfortunately for the criminals of Los Angeles, Bronson is back. Yeah. You are incorrect. It is number three. Mm. First mm. his wife, now his daughter, it's time to even the score. I like how they spoil part of the movie, but. Do they? To spoil it means that you couldn't guess what was going to happen. <laughs> huh. This, of course, stars Charles Bronson as Paul Kersey, Jill Ireland as Jerry Nichols, Vincent Gardinia as Detective Frank Osha, and Thomas F. Duffy as Nirvana. Uh, it should also be brought up here. Jill Ireland was married to Charles Bronson, so that's actually his wife. From what I can gather,
2: it's the only reason why she got roles.
0: Oh come on! Didn't they do like
2: fifteen movies together? Yeah, they
0: did a bunch of movies together before they divorced. Yep. Uh, if you watch this, don't
2: you think she's not
0: a competent actress? I don't. I don't know. I think that's maybe the movie versus her fault. But
2: what? What? El- what is her big? <laughs> I think she's got a Hollywood Walk of Fame star, but I don't. Yeah, well, know you why. pay for those, yeah. so that's not the hugest accomplishment. But I mean, just as an actress, I know she had a tragic end of life, and they were married until her death, but. Uh, mm-hmm. No.
0: Yeah. None of these people have like the biggest CVs that I have. Noticed. It's, it's interesting that you, that you said like Lawrence Fishburne has like the longest career yeah. and he's in this for like 10 seconds. Like well, he's, he's not in it for very long. I mean,
2: he is a principal evil guy and he makes some really disgusting faces in this, but it is shocking to see a reasonably young. Like I thought his big break was... Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That was 79. I, for some reason, I thought Apocalypse Now was like mid '80s or something. But you're right. 79.
0: Although I have to remember, because I had a long shooting schedule, so he could have been filming that in like
2: yeah, as a kid in mid now, to late
0: he? '70s. It's like a teenager. Uh, regardless, he was like 19 in Apocalypse Now, so he'd be only early 20s.
2: Yeah, he looks young. Uh, it's why it's hard to recognize him. That and the 80s uh, slot white sunglasses. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. I don't know if he's wearing the crop top. A bunch of them are wearing crop tops. And they actually have the ghetto blaster on the shoulder. It's a joke. The beginning is like a, you know, a stay safe type of car- cartoon commercial. You know, they that, just that is the details. other
0: thing that is uh, that runs through this entire series. That, that every street gang member is like the most caricatured street top that i've ever seen to the point where, like i don't believe these are real people
2: they're not like, real this, this people is,
0: this is not how this works not that i'm like the expert on cool. crime but but still it's like this feels so false to me the
2: prediction notes uh production sorry the production notes suggest that they actually went to the ghettos in la and you know hired extras that were on the streets but i think they did it in a ironically represent a represent- Representable way. I don't know. What is it in a representational way? Wow. Uh, Who's been sick? I didn't have a fever, but I can't speak. Representational way where they took every colorful character and then just had them parade scene by (laughs) scene. So you're just like, I don't know. Like there's maybe they did dress like that on the streets. Possible. New York's fun because it's so colorful. You see all kinds of weirdos Mm -hmm. on New York, but on the New York streets, it's a cartoon, incredibly violent disgusting, depraved cartoon.
0: Cinematography was by two people, Thomas Del Ruth and Richard H. Klein. Thomas Del Ruth, his top four from IMDb are Doing Camera and Electrical on The Graduate in 1967, Stand By Me in 1986. He did uh, cinematography for that. The Running Man in 1987, and then multiple episodes of The West Wing. Wow. Uh, Richard H. Klein... Did Soren Green from 1973, The Andromeda Strain from 1971, Howard the Duck from 1986, <laughs> and King Kong in 1976. Wow! I will say this: I know that you mentioned about it looking like a TV sitcom in the first. If there is one small, like little praise, I will give this film. I actually do think there are a bunch of shots that actually look really great. Like just again, cinematograph- cinematographically look pretty good Name in this them. film. But that's Now tell me which <laughs> ones specifically. I th- I don't know. I felt like some of the establishing shots of Los Angeles. There are some of those like I don't know, walking the streets shots that I thought were filmed pretty pretty decently. Uh not enough for me to be like, This is an amazing movie. No, no, no. I'm just <laughs> trying to think scratch, about but, it visually. I mean But you can tell, I think, when it's broken down, like, oh, this these some of these people were responsible for like Stand By Me, Running Man, uh, Andromeda Strain. Like there are some of those like wide shots that I don't know, captures mm. some Interesting compositions.
2: If you say so. I don't know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, you have the unfortunate belief that if you don't like something, then everything about it is bad and you can't praise anything about it. Yeah,
2: I'm a human being. So... (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: This is written by David Engelbach. Uncredited additional scripting by Michael Winner based on the characters created by Brian Garfield. Directed by Michael Winner. So, as a brief explanation, Brian Green. Brian Garfield writes the book Death Wish, and it's published in 1972. Uh, in that book, the main character's name is actually Paul Benjamin. He's a CPA, so not an architect, he's a CPA, and a staunch liberal, meaning he volunteers his time, gives back to the community. Why did they
2: switch that to an architect? Yeah, sorry, sorry. Yeah.
0: Just... I, I kind of agree with you. Like, If you're going to change it to being an architect... Wouldn't you make that part of the plot then if you're going to change it? No. Anyways, that doesn't matter. He goes back to his community, but can't seem to rationalize the rising crime that's happening in New York City. Then, one day, his son-in-law calls him, saying to get to the hospital. And when Brian arrives, he discovers that some junkies broke into their house, beat his wife to death, stole his television, and left his daughter in a vegetative state. So, Paul begins having a personality change. He starts carrying around a sock filled with quarters, and gradually begins to adopt a more conservative viewpoint on crime. Because the police are not making any headway, he wants to go after the criminals himself, much to the horror of his son-in-law. Eventually, he smuggles a gun into New York City and goes on his own journey of retribution. It should be pointed out, I don't know if it's still the case, although I think it is, but uh, especially during this time, it was illegal to have a handgun in New York City, which is why he had to smuggle him. The
2: book already sounds better. It sounds pretty interesting.
0: He isn't specifically targeting the people who hurt his wife and daughter, rather prowling the streets looking for crime, and in some cases, setting traps to lure criminals so that he can kill them. Basically Batman. Yeah. Eventually he's dubbed the vigilante by the press, villainized by the police captain. The book ends with Paul killing a bunch of young hooligans who are throwing rocks at a subway car. He kills them all, and a beat B-Cop happens upon the scene, and before Brian commits suicide, the cop tips his hat and leaves. Basically saying, hey, you're Doing a good job, buddy.
1: It's what I would have done.
0: Something that doesn't come from that description that is very clear, but as commented on by Brian Garfield himself, he never intended the main character to be seen as a superhero or even a good guy. The whole point is that he's being corrupted by his grief to go and commit these awful things. So it's eventually adapted into a film in 1974 initially meant to be directed by Sidney Lumet and starring Jack Lemmon and Henry Fonda, which would have been a much different film. Uh, But eventually Michael Winner gets the directing job and brings in Bronson as they had worked together before. It had a budget of $3.7 million and would make $22 million, which is why a sequel probably was warranted in the first place. Now, this is straight from Wikipedia, this next paragraph. Garfield was unhappy with the final product, calling the film incendiary and stated that the film's sequels are all pointless and rancid since they advocate vigilantism unlike his two novels, which make the opposite argument. The film led him to write a follow-up titled Death Sentence, which was published a year after the film's release. Bronson defended the film and felt that it was intended to be a commentary on violence and was meant to attack violence, not romanticize it. I call BS on it, but whatever. Bullshit. Um, Now, the first film had been produced by Dino De Laurentiis, but Canon Films had purchased the rights to the Death Wish concept and were eager to make a sequel. Mm -hmm. Canon Films has a very unique history, and I won't go into it here, but there was a documentary thing that came out two or three years ago that people should track down. They were very big for a while, for like 20 years or so. They heavily invested in the video market, which was very forward-thinking at the time, and even had the rights to Spider-Man for for a while. (laughs) But that never got off the ground. Like They were a big, big entity. And that's in part why I think there was more sequels, is because this was big on home video, when it got actually released. Bronson signs on to come back to the role. They had another director lined up, but Bronson insisted that Winner also return. Rather than use Brian Garfield's actual sequel, Death Sentence, they decide to use an original concept written by David Engelbach. This would be his first film credit, although apparently he was a research assistant on Jaws. Fun fact. And we get a story by credit for Over the Top, the arm wrestling film. Oh. For Stallone. Stallone. But once again, the writer turned out to be disappointed with the final product. Engelbach was somewhat appalled, that's in quotes, by how the film differed from the original script. He claims that the rape scenes were put in so that director Michael Winner could get his rocks off. Wow. He had also written a story in which Paul Kersey, the protagonist, was not seen as a hero. But he felt that Winner and the other producers had forced that into the narrative. Jimmy Page was asked to come and score the film. that's right. Jimmy Page um,
2: scored this, and it sounds like shit. All right, keep going.
0: I mean, I mean, I've heard worse things. It's not a good score. I'm not going to say that, but he just happened to be Winner's neighbor at the time because originally producers wanted uh, Isaac Hayes. That's who they actually wanted to come in and score this film. Add a
2: little shaft to it.
0: So yeah, to return to Canon's forward thinking, while this made money at the box office, it's estimated that in North America. It made back its budget and marketing for about a $2 million profit. But it was huge when it was released onto home video. Like, it outgrossed a bunch of other, like, high-profile films. They make the point of it being, like, it outgrossed uh, *Cherries of Fire, which was, like, the, the big number two the or time. something like that release film. So, like, there was a lot of people going out and buying this. And it would be followed by three more sequels. So, um, before we get into a quick little, uh, some other talking points here and then wrap this up. Do you want to hear about the next three films in the series? No,
2: not at all. You're going to tell me about it,
0: but yeah, I, don't, yeah, yeah. I
2: don't want to know at all. Yeah. Just for the record, for anyone listening, I do not want to participate in this next segment of Kyle's Conversation, but please proceed.
0: <laughs> Death, Wish, Death Wish 3 comes out in, I believe, 1985. He travels back to New York in, in Death Wish 3, going to see a friend As you might suspect, his friend is brutally murdered right before he shows up. And as he walks in, he sees the, the aftermath and then the police show up and arrest him. And essentially the police captain is like, I'm pretty sure you're the vigilante that used to prowl the streets here 15 years ago. And so I'm not saying for you to get back to work, but wink, wink, get back to work. And so that just is him going around and like killing a bunch of people. This turns into basically... Like the reverse Home Alone, because he's now in this apartment building with a bunch of older tenants and booby traps the entire place, so that like huge like spikes and stuff are coming out and killing people. It's like it's so bizarre. This is also where he basically makes a dig at Dirty Harry because was it the twenty-two Magnum that Dirty uh,
2: Harry uses? No, it's bigger, Four, forty-four. It's a forty-four. Oh, okay, that was the
0: reverse. Whatever. Twenty-two is smart. Whatever Dirty Harry uses. Why do I know that? Using, See, this is probably movies. I should. Well, he's that. using the even bigger. Version of the 44 like Magnum eagle or yeah, something. Like, the 44 Magnum, basically used by pussies or something like that. Wow. He's basically making a dig at Dirty Harry, right? And then he's gonna save the block basically because it's being terrorized by these hoodlums and 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 everyone else. So he goes to war with them, and then climaxes him. Yeah, just running around killing a bunch of people, and then shock upon shocks. The police captain himself comes out and they're running around and they're shooting people and they're killing people. <laughs> and it's like, yay, police and yay, vigilantism. That's basically what number, what number three is. Number four, if I could say I have a favorite one, would be number four. It's still not good. <laughs> it's, it's still not good, but it is, um, it's, it's Death Wish 4, The Crackdown. <laughs> This is the one you talked about. This like uh, this film feeling like a sitcom opening up. This felt like a made-for-TV movie, uh, except with swearing in it. Like it's they they it's an R-rated film, so they can drop F bombs and stuff like that. I will say, like the the setup to the film is actually pretty interesting. Again, in better hands, I think it would be kind of an interesting take for like a limited TV show or like a five season television series, five season television series, which five is season episode. I don't know, I'm just saying like, that's a lot.
2: That's a lot of death wish, man.
0: Well, um, let me just bring it up to you. Cause what this film is, is that this very rich man, this very rich benefactor basically contacts Charles Bronson and is like, I'm pretty sure you're the vigilante. It's like, everyone knows who he is apparently. And like, whatever brings him in. And is like, I have a bunch of money. I'm going to bankroll you. And we should go after the biggest, evil people within the city, the people who are like smuggling young women, like the people who are running drug cartels, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what he goes out and does. It's, but it's not good. (laughs) Like it, it just doesn't stick to landing mostly because we are now dealing with like a 68 year old Charles Bronson who's trying to run around and still do like action sequences. And it's like, oof, buddy, this is getting a little long in the tooth, but the actual concept I'm actually like, Oh, that's kind of an interesting entry point into this. As far as an exploration. And there's some twists and turns along the way. Um, but very made for TV movie Actually, like it's all of these people are like, you know, these are like C-level actors who do most of this. Unlike the finally, first three. Right, right. And then Death Wish 5. Oh, this is the other thing that I find fascinating. So we have Death Wish. Then we have Death Wish 2, Roman numeral. So it's like the two eyes. Death Wish 3 is a number three. Then we have Death Wish 4, the number four, colon the crackdown. But then Death Wish 5 goes back to the Roman numerals. So it's Death Wish V, the face of death. (laughs) This is 1994. And like I said, it is 71-year-old Charles Bronson still trying to make this work. Apparently, he gets so... (sighs) Every woman, like, falls on their knees for this guy because he's still dating very young women uh, in Death Wish 5. But regardless, he has another fiancé and her... Her business, she's she's in like fashion, uh, the fashion industry sort of thing. Gets targeted by mobsters. She's threatened, and then he goes on a Can't killing spree against these mobsters. So it's a pretty straightforward one.
2: Standard Death Wish, yeah. You know.
0: It's kind of a standard Death Wish.
2: Rents a hotel room, tapes a tapes a gun under a cabinet, and then uh, goes out and shoots
0: people randomly on the street. The only saving grace for Death Wish Five: Colon the Face of Death is that Michael Parks actually does a kind of a great villain in this movie but he's like the only one trying so it's like he just stands out from the rest of the crowd's like oh you're trying to be in an interesting movie here and everything else about it is pretty forgettable but like i said i for you dave took the bullet and watched all
2: you clearly enjoyed death it wish films. you clearly enjoyed it you should hear <laughs> when you listen back and post the energy level rise as you describe each successive death wish i just you know i want our listeners to know how sick you are uh you you're sick not just physically.
0: Well, in two different but, ways, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't know what it is about me. I'm just so compelled to be like, well, this has eight sequels. I have to watch them all. I have to watch so them all. Weird. So weird. Well, I don't know. Is there nothing about that that's like, how did this spawn no, so many sequels? No. Like, it's just so fascinating. Like, how? You how can did this it. You spawn so just many make sequels? A general.
2: You can make a generalized, ill-informed statement that America is simply broken And we can just move on and watch something more intelligible. Because there's no explaining it, it's irrational. It's irrational, A, that we even have a culture of sequels, like that's irrational in and of itself. The idea that you tell a story and someone's like, oh, I enjoyed that. Oh, you enjoy that? Well, uh, let me tell you the same story about the same people, but, uh, you know, this other thing's gonna happen. Oh, you like that one too? But not as much? Well, why don't I do that again? And this time, you know, I didn't really spend that much time on it because I didn't have enough time. But, you know, here you go. Oh, you fuckers still watch that shit. All right. Well, Mm -hmm. let's make one more because uh, as long as we make it for three million bucks to get five back, it's Mm -hmm. worth it.
0: It it is an interesting thing, though, because this is still in a time like it doesn't really happen this way anymore. But there was a time where every sequel that got produced actually was budgeted for less money. So this one, n- not quite the same, because I guess there was a bigger budget for number two, but it got like successfully lower budgets as it went along. We saw that with uh, the Planet of the Apes movies that we talked about. And nowadays it's like, oh, this one was $100 million. Well, the next one's going to be 150 and it's going to be 175 and this $200 million. Like it's always was bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger well, I feel when you like get successive sequels.
2: There's a there's a tipping point. I don't know if it's Titanic or Avatar. There's a tipping point where I think the way in which production costs were reported to the public, uh, became, I don't know, obfuscated obfuscuf- or whatever the word is like. Obfuscated. Obs- yeah. Uh, I'm tired. Uh, where they just stop reporting straightforward things. And I don't believe any of the numbers that come out anymore.
0: Okay. Mr. Tinfoil hat over
1: no, here. No, it's just,
2: it's weird, Kyle. It's weird. Like where, where do these budget numbers come from? What are we doing so differently?
1: I mostly just put numbers in random order and send them to Hollywood. Nobody double checks.
2: I I mean, I don't know. Maybe CGI does cost more than on set, but then why not just make on set productions if you Mm -hmm. aren't saving money doing special effects, you know, on a green screen? And we're starting to see that thread come unraveled because the CGI is not holding up for the turnaround times that they're putting on these things. Right? You get a better, you'd better get, you would get a better product, uh, putting people. Uh, On wires, as some films still do, uh, or Chris Nolan loves to do, just having practical effects because as much as possible, of course, he does a lot of uh, weird mindfuck stuff. But, you know, if you're going to blow something up, blow something up. Do I believe that every film has a $200 million budget now? It's weird. It's just- Is this the one that has the car blow up in uh, it? Yes. the. I mean, that's such an 80s trope having something fall off a cliff and explodes. Great. At least this one, they filled the trunk with munition. So it kind of wasn't out, you know, wasn't so stupid, but
0: to bag on this film a a little bit more, (laughs) there is one cut that happens in this movie that is so completely baffling to me. And I don't know if you even know what I'm talking about. So he's going to the medical facility, right? That's the, leader of the gang is there. He's going to go and confront them. He's in his house. He puts on his, his doctor coat to let the audience know, oh, he's pretending to be a doctor, and he's, you know, made the fake ID. We then cut to him driving his car, where he has a leather jacket, and he's taken off the doctor's coat so that when he arrives, he has to take off the leather jacket and put back his doctor's coat again. I don't understand why that's in the movie. It seems such a weird cut to do. Well, all of it's dumb. I, you know, mm. where,
2: I mean, I talked about at the beginning. Why does he get a motel room if he's not actually going to use it? He hides a gun Mm -hmm. there, but he had changed the lock in his house. It's irrelevant. Why does he do the fraudulent test writing of the photocopied ID badges Mm -hmm. in his living room except so that there's a convenient way for the girlfriend to discover that he's the vigilante you would absolutely do that in said hotel room if you're an actual vigilante there's no it's not like he has special equipment at his house and then he's just balling the shit up and throwing in a wastebasket meanwhile when he's at the hotel everything's covered he's, he's you know he's using towels and gloves and he's making sure there's no yeah, fingerprints. Like none of
0: this really follows idiotic any typological sense no. plus it makes the the hugest tactical error of being boring at the same time yeah it's like, weird if you're going to blow shit up, blow shit up. Yeah, I, I wish it was so bonkers bad that it was like, well, at least I had fun while watching this because well, it was so wildly bad. But. That's the thing.
2: I, I, I don't know if I was half expecting this, but uh, in our rewrite session, if you're going to make such a morally bankrupt film, you got to go big. Like the kills have to be ridiculous. There's got to be more bad guys. You got to use the giant hand cannons and like, you know, like blow shit up because at least there's graphic visual content value. You know, if I go and pay my whatever it used to be five bucks to sit my ass down in a in a theater, if I'm at least like a horror movie watching shit just go completely off the rails, that at least is something, whether, you know, whether you like it or not. Mm. But this thing is supposed to be an action, you know, vengeance thing and it's also boring. It, it's just a failure on every level. I, Helen asked me why we watch so many bad movies and I Jumped up and said, we watched good ones too. And then I couldn't name any because we watched so many bad movies. We watched so um, many bad we movies. We watched
0: First Blood like two weeks ago, Dave. <laughs> uh, two last things I just want to mention. Obviously, I always have to point out any rats that show up in the movie. Oh, and yeah, this that's was just right. Crawling with rats. You know, we need like, tr- How is this your hideout when there's <laughs> rats literally crawling over everything? Well, it wasn't
2: a hideout. It was there for their uh, drug exchange. But... We start need to start a checklist of every film that incorporates rats for seedy, mm-hmm. you know, seediness. I, I think you've seen, I have a feeling by the end of this, you're going to be over your phobia of rats because you're exposed oh, no. to a lot of them, dude. It's like every well, other I, movie, I feel like we've seen a
0: rat. I know, it's off-putting. Um, And then finally, the uh, vampire gang that shows up. <laughs> right, at the very beginning. And I don't know, like, maybe this is giving it too much credit, but uh, there, there, I don't know if you remember this. I certainly remember it from, like, the mid-'80s, maybe into the early-'90s. There was, like, this moral panic about, like, Satanism in the youth and, like, drinking blood and all that kind of stuff. You I know. feel like this is, like, they leaning into that voice. idea that, like, all these young people are actually, like, secret vampires. No, but no I don't anyways, know. I don't know.
2: That's reading really into it. I think it was just stupid. You know, maybe, maybe they just walked across a guy that actually... Either mm-hmm. had ketchup on his mouth accidentally <laughs> or like, you know, intentionally puts that there to scare folks mm-hmm. away. The 80s are a weird time because when we think about fashion trends for the average person and it's all neon and, you know, like crazy stuff, we have the the workout culture starting to grow and uh, cocaine and Miami Vice. Like It's just, it's visually different. What would a gangster look like at that time? <laughs> a street thug, you know? It's uh, maybe they dress mm-hmm. like this, you know, like- high-waisted track pants and a crop, mesh crop top, weird slot-eyed uh, sunglasses. So, it's weird. Mm-hmm. We think it's laughable and it looks ridiculous, but maybe I'd clutch my purse if I saw <laughs> some blushy uh, blonde-haired guy with white makeup and a piece of mm-hmm. ketchup on his chin. I mean, it's
0: pretty frightening.
1: We're done here.
0: Well, the machine has said that we do have to wrap things up here. I feel bad because usually I try and inject a little bit of positivity into why? these. Yeah, why? But this is a bad movie, and no one should watch it. And you could not—you should not waste your time on any of the Death Wish movies. I did it so that you don't have to.
2: No, you did it for yourself, Kyle. Just let's yeah, talk about some of I'm the. Be with that now.
0: Let's let's enter into Critics' Choice, Dave. This is part of the show where we discover what the critics thought at the time that this film was released. Roger Ebert gave this one of his Unusual, zero star reviews. He spends at least half of the review justifying why he's giving this movie zero stars. But he ends with this, he says, What's most shocking about Death Wish 2 is the lack of artistry and skill in the filmmaking. The movie is underwritten and desperately underplotted, so that its witless action scenes alternate with lobotomized dialogue passages. The movie doesn't contain an ounce of life. It slinks onto the screen, and squirms for a while, and is over. So that's how he... It's a good, good sum up, I think, of how I felt about it. Shocker Punk shocks, uh, Pauline Kale did not review I this I would have loved. <laughs> <He was like, laughs> should have had shit. a stroke, but all right. Instead, I went to Utterbox to see if I yeah. could pull something. So I found a positive review the... from Waldo. Of course. Where is he now? Who knows? No one can find him. So uh, he writes, as exploitative as it gets, a cash grab sequel, filthy disgusting, sleazy. Yep, that's why it's so goddamn good. Architect Paul Kersey is in LA now, and in the tragic events in New York, sorry, after the tragic events in New York, in LA, everything will be alright. Wrong. This time, a ridiculous gang of thugs steals old Bronson his wallet, leading them to his home, where they wreak havoc. I mean, this is the uncut Shout Factory Blu-ray, so havoc means two of the most horribly rape murders ever filmed. Plus, we got the meeting Jesus scene, the shootout at the underground parking garage, the death by radio scene with Fishburne, Nirvana fucking kicking cops' asses, and the final extreme shocking therapy with Bronson and Nirvana squaring off. A true cult classic, Grindhouse, son of a bitch. Oh, almost forgot, how about that gloriously weird Jimmy Page music score? 23 people liked this. He gave it four and a half stars out of five.
2: Wrong. I think he put it himself. He put it best himself.
0: Wrong. So, Dave, does this film hold up and is it still culturally relevant?
2: Of course, no, no. But I will say, as uh, another jab at our modern North American culture, isn't it culturally relevant? Don't people still fantasize about this shit? Well,
0: this this is kind of my point. I don't think this holds up. Not at all. I might make a play or an argument that it is actually still culturally relevant. I think with... Well, I mean, this is also a bit of a prejudice because I am biased because of being on Twitter. But um, I think someone coming at this material and actually adapting what the original author's intent was would be interesting to be like, this is not a good guy. And kind of combining that with like, and... Cops might be a little bit culpable in this too, right? Like that is kind of there. No, there's a feeling, not... I guess, with that. With with um, vigilanteism is actually, if it's in service of the police, then they're kind of going to support it because why would they feel bad about like quote unquote bad guys dying? I think there's something there to actually adapt yeah, that's into something interesting.
2: You're not answering the question of whether this film is culturally relevant. You're yeah, okay. answering the question I, of how you would work the plot. Sure. Of the first, I one would say that. I would a, say a, that a,
0: a the movie. the themes, unfortunately, are the film is not. I would say the film is not. Uh, Even my, though it has been adapted three more times since it came out. But. Well, I
2: feel yeah, and this is the thing, you know, when you read, unfortunately, some of the uh, purported dialogue of the modern, you know, school shooter, uh, racially mm-hmm. motivated murders, people who murder women, etc. They have the same dialogue as this mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. Right? They're all saying they're going to right or wrong with their fists, their knives or their guns and that it's all justifiable because something traumatic happened to them, you know, real or imagined. And this is the problem with films like this because there's no consequences on the narrative itself. I mean, I'm not going to say that all those people watch Death Wish 2 and have posters of Charles Bronson uh, in their weird bedrooms or coves with uh, chalk writings on the wall, but I wouldn't be surprised if they did. Because uh, this is the kind of anthem, right? This is the kind of rallying call type of film. So I don't want it to be culturally relevant, but I suspect that's why all these idiots write their hopefully tongue-in-cheek reviews on Letterboxd because I'm sure people still watch this garbage, you know,
0: sick. I think that's a good point. I think that the unfortunate history of this film or like the legacy of this film is entirely that is that you often get these arguments with satire, which is like sometimes satire is so good that... People can look at it at face value and be like, oh, well, this is the proper oh, so way to do things club. or the proper yeah. way to, to think about things.
2: Yeah.
0: I don't think this is satire. That's not my argument. But I could see someone coming at this and be like, well, Paul Kersey took the law into his own hands. And so because I've been felt, uh, filled with all this BS about who the real villains of the world are, well, I'm just going to go and shoot them all because I'm morally justified to do that. Yeah. That's, the, that's the unfortunate thing. And when guns are so easy to get in the United States, then it kind of just devolves into whoever has the bigger gun.
2: We got to the heated debate in Dirty Harry about the difference between vigilantism and fascism, but I mm-hmm. you know I'll say the same argument. These are not uh, fascist films, right? These are films about a personal violence and personal vindication, and I think that's what makes these things so dangerous is that they're interpreted in a way without a cause. You know, uh, Fight Club is the same thing. Uh, People, anyone who watches Fight Club and thinks that it's a good idea to start building bombs in their house mm-hmm. <laughs> because they hate the establishment, it says more about you than the film. Because the, that film, at the very least, David Fincher, at the very least, makes sick films where you know that everybody in it is sick. And this is a film where Charles Bronson, because he's just a block of wood, he, he, you know, by the end, you're like, you know what? Maybe he should have done it. Nobody else is doing anything, right? Mm-hmm. It's all gross. Yeah. Well I'm upset about we do
0: it. need to rate this film, but before we do, that is what Dave and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. We also occasionally upload a video onto our YouTube channel that talks about a film that we've talked about in the past, so go over there. I think we just got our 100th subscriber, so that's exciting. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxed page. That's letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month. Something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. Before we get into reading this movie, this one last thing. I do... There is a bit of joy I got from this movie. The one glimmer of when the very obvious stunt double of Charles Bronson <laughs> jumps off the edge of the building <laughs> and then it's back to Charles Bronson. Loose knees, but...
2: baby. Yeah, he has some good flexibility on that thing. All
0: right, so let's get to rating this movie. Dave, out of five, what would you give this movie?
2: Whatever our lowest, uh, you know, I just had this sudden fear that putting something at the very bottom might encourage someone to watch something because they want to know how bad it is, right? But there's nothing redeemable about this film I I hate calling it a film about this thing. So I think it's a 0.5, right? We're not allowed to give it the Ebert zero, so... Yeah, I
0: don't... It's just how Letterboxd works. I wish you could actually give a zero review. It's okay.
2: I'm going to go with a 0.5. You know, Million Dollar Duck was stupid, but this thing's actually just personally offensive. And I really just don't think anyone should know that this thing exists.
0: Yeah, I get into my head a little bit too much. I'm giving it a one, by the way. I'm giving it a one star. I kind of, I don't know, now I'm going to try and justify myself. I just feel like if I look at a Yes, Giorgio or uh, a a million dollar duck type of thing, I just find those films so aggressively awful to sit through where this is more boring bad. So I don't know. I have a slight (laughs) differentiation there. Regardless, it's a bad movie. Don't watch it. This does tie then, Dave, with Yes, Giorgio. So do you think it's better or worse?
2: I I mean, I think it's worse just because Two things. Yes, Giorgio, as dumb as it is, is morally benign. I mean, I know he's an asshole, but it's not inciting violence. And two, Pyrrhoda can sing. and you, At the very least, if you scrub <laughs> the middle parts, uh, right, you right, get a good right. concert. Because, you know, the performances are fantastic. So, for that reason, I would put Yes, Giorgio above it.
0: Alright, I will, I will uh, agree with that. That does mean, then, that's going to go to the bottom of our list. Right underneath Yes, Giorgio. So, entering our list at the new Number 28 position. Well, I guess we should find out what we're watching here next week, Dave. Hopefully something a little bit better than Death Wish. Oh, one of my favorite films. So this is going to be so exciting to talk about. We're going to watch another sequel, Star Trek II. The Rack of Khan.
2: Khan. Khan. I was telling Helen about the earworm and she got really angry at me for even bringing it up. She's like, now I have to think about it. I'm like, well, we didn't watch the movie. And she said, that makes it worse because now I can imagine what a worm looks like going to the air. <laughs> All I could think about is whatever you're imagining, it's probably correct. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I have a lot of fun with that movie. So yeah. I'm going to have a lot of fun talking about it. Dave, I, is, that a, is that a van of a, a Repo Man that just pulled up <laughs> outside? Wait, who starred in that with Emilio
2: Estevez? Was it Charlie Sheen?
0: Oh, I don't remember.
2: Huh. Well, yeah. This big truck. I
0: think, I think, I think D.D. Hess is repossessing all of our arcade systems.
2: Actually, if I had to guess, it's the CD people we uh, took a loan from to open this place and D.D. Hess is going to be getting into some trouble. She's going to have to
0: hire herself a vigilante. I knew that they, when they didn't have a store finder, we met in that one guy's bedroom that this was probably a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. I was worried only when
2: we discovered, you know, he wasn't wearing any clothes. Never take a loan. <laughs> From a naked man in his bedroom.
1: He's got the kind of face you could sharpen a pencil on.